0: Aloha and welcome to SUP FM, the podcast for stand-up paddleboarders everywhere. So with no further ado, let's get out on the water and on with the show. Here are your hosts, Nick and Simon. Well, aloha, Nick. Now, this interview is quite a coup for us. So who is it we've got on the pod today? Well, I'm not going to mess around. It's Larry Kane, and if you haven't heard of Larry Kane... He is an absolute legend in the sport. He won gold medal in the Olympics in 1984 in Los Angeles for canoeing, for C1 canoeing. And he explains all about it. And the the way he describes his race is just phenomenal. I love it, amazing. But Larry has gone on to transfer from canoeing into stand up paddle and has created Paddle Monster and has trained some of all the best. Actually, he's trained the world champions. He trains Connor Baxter, Seychelles Sap, um and he's transferred a lot of his knowledge across to a lot of the elite in today's sport and now um his mission with with paddle monster and john bosang and they're trying to transfer that information to a much greater swathe of people so if you guys are out there wanting to get involved in a little bit of racing or maybe even just extend your paddling a little bit more they are doing a lot of work on paddle monster to try and broaden the message and to help a lot more people so it's, it's really exciting and it's fascinating to hear his history because he started way back when um, when st- stand-up paddleboarding was just getting going and and obviously Larry comes from a, a different perspective because he's in Canada and he paddles year-round so there's a lot of a little bit about cold water paddling and some great tips that you need to know when you're doing when you're going out in cold cold conditions we're talking like minus twenty here, man. But anyway, without further ado, here's Larry Kane. Well, Larry Kane, thanks so much for joining us on the SUP FM podcast. It's it's an honor to have you on. It really is. I'm. Um, uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Great. You know, I know you're from Canada. Uh, I know you're a legend. I know you're a coach. But how did it all start in, in paddle sports with you? What what brought you down to the Oakville Racing Canoe Club back in 1974?
1: Uh, well, you know, I live. Um I grew up in Oakville, which is a a suburban community of Toronto, which is the largest city in Canada. Um, And uh, so in 1974, I was 11 years old. And uh, along with uh, a family of three boys across the street and two boys in the next block, we wandered down to the canoe club uh, for the first time. Uh, Actually, our mothers had uh, got together and looked in the local recreation brochure for programs that they could get us to go in um that summer that's something they did every year and in previous years we would played soccer and baseball and things like that but um none of us really wanted to go back to those activities and so um they found the canoe club and they ran that idea by us and uh that was something that we all thought would be really cool so um you know we rode our bikes down to the canoe club and found that it was a lot of fun um certainly different being on the water and um um like I would say honestly a lot less structure than there was in these other team sports um I know that's worrisome in today's world when you tell a parent that there's not a lot of structure when you're near the water but um it was uh extremely fun and initially it consisted mostly of pleasure canoe and and water safety instruction but while we were there we had an opportunity to see the racing canoes and kayaks and um try them and um A sprint racing canoe called the C1, Uh, the C means Canadian, actually. It's the only sport in the Olympic program that's named after a country. Um, That Canadian canoe singles or C1 is extremely tippy. And so when we all tried to paddle it, I was the worst of our group. And um, so I was very determined to um, uh, get better at it. And so uh, I would be down at the canoe club from 9 until 12 in the morning. We'd ride our bikes home for lunch. That I go back from one till four in the afternoon, and then I go back in the evening from seven till you know eight wow. thirty or something like that. <laughs> That's and um, Yeah, well, it was just fun, right? And um, there was also uh, like a war canoe, fourteen paddlers and a captain that we were uh, that we were paddling in and, and actually racing in in our first summer. But, Sorry, was um, that a
0: dragon canoe? Did you say
1: it's like a dragon boat? It's a we high kneel in it like you do in a C1. It's seven paddlers a side and a captain at the back. It's called a war canoe or a C15. It's an event that's um, unique to Canada and it's a big part of the, the sprint canoe racing program at canoe clubs across the country. Um, so it's a good, you know, learning boat to paddling, because you and it's the, the boat that everyone does their first races in. And then if you um, you know, if you're if you are willing to spend the time in in small boats, we call them singles, doubles, and fours, then you can end up racing in them. And uh, so I, I, you know, over over time, I ended up getting to the point where I could uh, paddle in um, in C1 and uh, you know stay in the boat for a few hundred meters. And um,
0: and I guess how wide were those things? I mean, they must be like 15 inches wide or something.
1: Um, you know what? I mean, in the in the uh, in the old days when I was doing it, they were they were actually quite a bit wider than the paddleboard I'm paddling on now, which is twenty point seven five um inches wide. Um but that was like high above the waterline. So they the the waterline was, was really narrow. And uh but they they you know they rose up above the waterline and flared out to what they call the delta point or the wide point. Um and it was uh you know probably in the range of, I'm going to say 28 inches wide at the widest point, but that was not the waterline. So at the waterline, they would be, you know, maybe eight inches to 10 inches wide, really narrow and uh, very tippy. Um, but I, I started racing in 1975 and I had, um, at that club, I had the benefit of really good direction from coaches, really good coaches and, and some older paddlers, some role models. And, uh, um, I started training hard in 1976. Uh, I saw a local guy, um, win a silver medal at the Olympics in Montreal in that same event, uh, C1. Uh, and I remember watching on the television, turning to my parents and saying, that's what I want to do. And, um, so that put the idea of the Olympics in my mind. And, um, by 1977 I was racing and doing well in my age group and um, things kind of accelerated from there I, I, again I had great coaching and good older paddlers to sort of chase and and to learn from as role models and um, by 1980 I just missed making the Olympic team and then in 84 I was on the Olympic team
0: and and on the podium. I'd love to um, dig into the Olympics but just before we get there um, for those out there who don't know, can we just define the difference between canoes and kayaks? And also, did you ever paddle kayaks and race kayaks?
1: Sure. So a kayak is a, is a sit-down boat um, where you use a double-blade paddle. Uh, so you've got a, a blade on each end of the paddle. And, um, you know, you sit down and you, and you paddle on both sides. You paddle, you know, you take one stroke on the left and then you you uh, take the blade out of the water and you're ready to, you're all set up to take your stroke on the right. Um in sprint canoe, uh, the kayaks have rudders, uh, little uh, tiny rudders at the back that help them track straight or turn, and you control them with your feet, and they're connected by cables to the to the rudder mechanism at the back of the boat. Um, the canoe events are, uh, oh, and the kayak is all decked over except for the little cock, cockpit where the paddler sits. In a canoe... Uh, it's an open boat, except for a tiny decked area at the front and the back. Um, it, it has no rudder or steering mechanism. You have to steer with your paddle. And you only paddle on one side. So you pick a, a side to paddle on. You're either a left or a right you know, when you start. Uh, I was a right, so um, I did all my strokes when I was racing sprint canoe on the right side. And again, you'd have to steer with your paddle. So you'd end up doing sort of a modified J-stroke to um, keep the boat tracking straight. And um, um, in those boats, we would be, rather than sitting down, we'd be in a high-kneel position. So I would be kneeling on my right knee with my left leg uh, in, and left foot in front of me. Um, and um, and as, as I said, paddling only on the right side. Um, and, and kayaks,
0: uh, obviously, Olympic sport as well. Yeah,
1: yeah, our sport is known in the Olympics as canoe kayak. Um, and uh, it's the international federation that um, um, uh, san- sanctions all of the events is called the ICF, the International Canoe Federation. But throughout Europe, uh, you know, they talk about canoe as being canoe and and, and kayak. Uh, in fact, kayak's probably more popular in a lot of European countries than canoe is. Um, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, definitely here in Portugal for sure. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, you have, yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, Portugal is a big kayak center now, they, they actually make. The canoes and kayaks uh they're the best manufacturers in portugal now and
0: uh yeah our friends over at nello right
1: right no yeah exactly
0: yeah yeah
1: shout yeah. out to andre who uh, i haven't seen in a while but he's a great guy and a uh, real good real good thinker of uh of paddling. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to him when I was uh, coaching the national team.
0: And I think um, Nella has had some um, some relationship with with the Chalupskis. Do you know the Chalupskis from South Africa? I
1: do know Oscar. Yeah, I've met Oscar a number of times and I enjoy talking to him. He's a, he's a character and a real fountain of knowledge for sure.
0: Yeah, he's quite a legend in South Africa. It's amazing mm-hmm. where I'm originally from. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But okay, so let's dig into the start line at the Olympics in 1984. I mean, take us through how that felt. And what had led up to that moment when you won the gold medal for your country?
1: Well, um, you know, I've been racing internationally for a bunch of years. By that point, my um, sort of uh, um, my first international racing was in 1979 at the Junior World Championships, and then I raced again at the Junior Worlds in 1981, and I won both the 500 meter and thousand meter uh, at the Junior Worlds in '81. I also came fifth at the World Championships that year in the 500 meters. So I was kind of already. On that track to be an Olympian, I was a finalist at the World Championships. Uh, I was fourth in both events, 500 meter, 1,000 meter at the World Championships in 82. And um, so I knew uh, right there that I was contending for a medal at the Olympics. Um, You know, at the Olympics, um, I remember being on the starting line uh, for the 500 meter race and looking, I was in lane seven, looking to my left and seeing six competitors that uh, I had beaten and who had beaten me. And then looking to my right and seeing two more competitors that um, I had beaten and they had beaten me. And um, it was, um, it just came down to, you know, who's going to have the best race and put everything together, um, you know, in the moment. And um, uh, I just figured, why not, why should that not be me? And um, so uh, I had, I I just remember after taking that glance to my left and my right, looking straight down the course, uh, it was a glassy Flat day, and with buoys every ten meters apart all the way down the race course for five hundred for five hundred meters, it was like looking down a a lane on the on a highway or looking down like a a landing strip on an airfield with all the lights on. Um, I just focused down my lane, and 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 that was it. And um, the race started. I had a solid start, Um, and then my transition was really good. And um, I remember uh, having this sensation uh, after about 200 meters into the race where it was starting to get quiet and I was starting to not see, um, you know, other boats in my peripheral vision. And, uh, I went through the 250 meter mark and, and I heard a, a, a like, a, a bit of a roar from the crowd and, um, uh, they were doing, you know, I found out later when I was watching other races, they were doing like a, a live commentary of the races. So, you know, they had must've said that, I was leading and, uh, there was a lot of Canadian support in the, in the uh, crowd, but I, so I remember hearing that roar. And then, as I said, the, the, I was far enough in front of that point that things were getting quiet and uh, I had just this, this sensation of glassy water on either side of me, which is really unusual in a sprint canoe race because they're often really close. And um, and so then, you know, I just, again, focused on the finish line and focused on the next stroke, not getting too excited, not thinking about, you know, not thinking I'm going to win this thing or anything like that, just thinking of being committed to the process, not the outcome. And, uh, um, you know, it became evident in the last 50 meters that I was going to win. And it was there. It's where you're just taking strokes, uh, trying not to mess things up at that point, you know? And uh, I remember crossing the finish line and just feeling this tremendous um, sense of relief and satisfaction. And, uh, um, you know, it's hard to um, comprehend when something that you've been working on for eight years, since I'd seen John Wood win his silver medal in Montreal, watched it on television with my parents. You know, to find all, all of a sudden you had done what you'd set out to do. It's pretty amazing feeling.
0: must have been unbelievable. And then you live with that for the rest of your life. So you can always, I'm pretty sure you've still got that, that gold medal, right?
1: I absolutely have that the gold medal, um, for sure. Uh, the next day I went out and I won a silver medal in the 1,000 meter. Um, wasn't as good a race, uh, but it was, you know, decent. And I'll just tell you as an aside, I also, I came fourth in 88 with a good race. It just wasn't quite good enough in 1,000 meter. And my friends took me out uh, that night in downtown Seoul, and they they gave me the 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 top of a beer can, the aluminum top of a beer can, you know, with the hole that you drink through. And they put a string through it, and they made an aluminum medal for coming forth. So uh, <laughs> I still have that aluminum medal as well. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. But these are memories you carry with you. Um, I think the cool thing about you know any of the races that I've done in the past where they've been you know really great races is um it's not so much the the you know the did you win or did you lose um or the um you know the medal that uh is the memory from it but it's the 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 feeling of being of putting it all together and having basically the ultimate race the perfect race at the precise time that you needed to have it that's kind of the memory that stays with you and um You know, if there's a metal associated with it and it's sitting on a shelf, then when you look at the metal, you think of that, the fact that it was one of those few times, you know, where you actually put everything together perfectly. Um, And, you know, you know yourself in life, um, you you try to do that in virtually everything you do. And um, you come close a lot of the time, but few times are you able to say, you know, I did it perfectly, like it could not have been better. And that particular race that day was one of those times where, um, I can say that, and, um, that's, uh, a unique experience to carry with you. And it's something you can draw a lot of confidence from too, because you can do other things in your life and know that, you know, under the most intense pressure, you've been able to put everything together, um, when it matters most. And that makes you think that you can do it again in other things as well. And, uh, so, yeah, it was pretty pretty special, pretty unique and um um you know, a, a fantastic memory for sure.
0: Well, that was beautifully described. Thank you very much for that, Larry. That was that was amazing. Um years later, the local authorities have named a shore trail in Oakville in your honor.
1: Mm-hmm. How did
0: how did that feel? I mean, because there's obviously going to be a lot of that people um you know, honoring you afterwards. How how did that feel?
1: Yeah, that was amazing. That was in uh 1997. Um and I had no idea that was coming. Um and uh um, you know, it it uh it, it's a great honor. Um and the, the cool thing is, I mean, I'm down there um still on that patch of water paddling every day. And uh I paddled by the, you know, a lot basically along the trail and by the signs at either end of it and head out into the lake. And um um, you know, I, I like the there's a the trail starts at this great surf spot that we've discovered. Um, on the lake right just to the west of our, of the harbor. And and to understand, you know, the area we're from, Lake Ontario, it's one of the great lakes. It's a massive lake, but it doesn't have constant groundswell. So we get, we get surf, but we get it, you know, on those special days, um, you know, maybe a couple of days a month uh, where you might get waist to chest to even head high, clean surf. Um, but the rest of the time we're, you know, we're on flat water or small wind chop or whatever, And, um, but this amazing surf spot, uh, is right underneath the sign, you know, where this, this trail starts and, uh, and I can be out there, you know, bombing down a wave and I can look up and I can see people on shore on the trail looking out watching us. And it's, it's actually really cool just to think, you know, that they don't know who I am and they don't know, they see the sign and they don't know who that guy is. But, um, you know, that's me, that's my trail there on my trail and I'm still doing what I've been doing since I was a little kid. It's really, uh, it's kind of
0: surreal. That's incredible. Yeah. But talking about surfing on the lakes, because obviously I think a lot of people who, who are not familiar with, with the size of the lakes, obviously realize, think that there's absolutely zero surf as well. But, um, do you ever get any ferries and big boats around there that that can create wakes that you can surf and that peel off the edge of the lake?
1: Yeah, we do. You know, uh, there's a, a big, shipping industry on the great lakes. There's uh, you know massive lake freighters that go up and down the lakes and, um, um, they, um, they'll kick off a big wake, but the, the, the problem is that, uh, you know, for what you're describing, they're far enough out in the lake that, um, they're hard to get to. And, uh, the other issue is that, um, you know, they don't take kindly to, um, to us, uh, trying to, um, uh, you know, get in there, you know, be anywhere near them when they're, when they're doing their thing. So, um, the best we can hope for is to, uh, to, you know, uh, catch a ride on a, on a sailboat or, um, you know, like a, a a sizable yacht and, um, power yacht. And we can get to do that occasionally, but most of the time, um, we're left to, uh, downwinding and we get some pretty decent downwind conditions. Um, you know, the summer is a little bit, july a bit of a it's the doldrums it's pretty flat but um the spring we get some great downwinding conditions in late august september october uh we'll get some fantastic downwind conditions too so they can be anywhere depending on which way the wind blows we're at the west end of lake ontario so if the wind's coming out of the southwest we'll get you know small little kind of two foot to four foot you know fast clean waves that are really fun to ride and uh if it's from the east, then the, the the fetch is you know 300 kilometers, and the waves come in a lot bigger and a lot uh, messier, and uh, that's where you start to get like ocean type swell. And um, those downwind conditions are fun as well; they're they're more challenging, and um, but we like them because we know that not only do we get the fun of downwind uh, downwinding in them, you know that day that we know that when the, the wind drops the next day or changes direction, there's going to be like this residual swell and that ends up being a surf day.
0: Nice. Because obviously when people mention Canada, I immediately think of snow. And now it's currently November. Mm-hmm. Um, moving into deep winter, what kind of paddling environment do you have to deal with in Toronto year round?
1: Well, we go year round. Uh, I'm lucky I've got a group of uh, guys that I paddle with, guys and girls. Uh, somebody named us the paddle morons and we we go with that
0: um oh is that a real thing i was yeah, looking at yeah, that in a yeah 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 no
1: we're, we're the paddle morons and um <laughs> but we go all winter and uh so you know you gear up properly and um we're lucky the lake does not freeze uh you get kind of patchy ice on it when it gets really cold but um the rivers freeze so we have to change our launch spot from in the harbor to uh along the lake shore but i would say you know i paddle on average four to five days a week all through the winter and um uh, a lot of days it'll be like glassy flat and the only thing that re- you really have to worry about is um, dodging, you know, patch ice here or there. Um, and then other days it's, you know, it's windy and, and you get some really fun, interesting downwind conditions. And as long as you're geared upright, um, you know, we've learned all the tricks that you need to learn to keep your hands and your, and your toes warm um, because uh, those are the things that tend to get coldest the quickest um, and then beyond that, you know, if you've, you've got your dry suit on and you're, you've got the proper clothing underneath, you get pretty warm. And like I've told people, it, it's, uh, no matter how cold it is outside, it's summer inside your dry suit. And, um. You know, the coldest part is changing. Uh, you know, uh, sitting on the on the back hatch of the car after and changing. Uh, you know, outside that's the the coldest part. Uh, but it it's well worth it to get out there and and continue to to enjoy what you you're doing in some of the most unique
0: paddling conditions that you'll ever find. So, what are those tricks and tips to keep your hands and feet warm? Do you just sort of have an electric heater wired up to your electric? <laughs> What's it called? It's a, um, a kettle full of yeah, water. No. water so what I,
1: I've, I've learned, you know, like you try different things and, you know, initially you suffer and then you start to figure things out. So what I do is I use uh, only three mil gloves, which neoprene gloves, which seems really thin for the, you know, when you consider that we're out into conditions that are with wind chill, you know, into the mid minus twenties. Um, but what I do is I put uh, those nitrile, uh, you know, uh, doctor's medical gloves on uh, underneath. So I'll put uh, I'll put those gloves on and then I'll put them in my uh, neoprene gloves. And the reason I started doing that was to keep, I remember I got a had a cut in my hand and it got infected from the, you know, cause neoprene gets kind of rancid if you don't wash it all the time. And so we got infected. So I remember I put on the infected hand, I put a glove on and then put it in my glove so I could still paddle and not get it more infected. And then the other hand, I was just put my hand in the neoprene glove. And while I was out there, I discovered that the hand with the the nitrile glove on it, the, the the medical glove, was so much warmer than my other hand that I we we I tried it on both hands, and it was like uh, this great discovery. So, what I do now is um, <clears throat> on those really cool days, as I drive down to the lake to paddle, I put my gloves, the the neoprene and the uh, the, the the medical gloves, I put them up on the the dashboard. Of the car um you know with the defrost on so it, it's blowing hot air on them and uh i leave the car running while i get everything set up and then the last thing i do is i put my hand in these really warm gloves and then you're fine and once you start to sweat in them and you, you get some uh you know sort of a uh, a layer of sweat inside the, nit- the nitrile glove um that just keeps your hands toasty warm and then for the feet what i do is i use seven or eight millimeter boots And, um, I use uh, Merino wool socks. So I get a boots are a size big so I can put the socks on. And I actually get just, uh, and this is kind of environmentally unfriendly and I apologize for that, but I get the, um, the plastic bags that you get at the grocery store that you put your produce in when you take it up to the cash register. And, um, I, uh, I'll put them over my socks and then slide them into the, to the, uh, to the boots. And then I'll pull a gasket of my dry suit over the tops of my boots. So my feet will stay, not only will they stay warm because I've got all this layering, but they also stay dry. Uh, you know, the only moisture that gets in unless I'm in the water for a long period of time, like on a surf day, the only, the only, uh, moisture that gets in is just sweat. And, um, so that keeps them really warm. And I get probably like a dozen uses out of each each bag. So um, I figure that I'm using the bags more than the people who are uh, getting more use out of them, than the people who get the one use out of them at the, at the grocery store. And they are recyclable in Canada, too. So when I'm done, I can recycle them.
0: For instance, so not a single-use plastic at all. Multiple no, no, somewhere. no. It's
1: still plastic. It's still not the best, but uh, um, it's. Uh, it's better You yeah. know, if if somebody's going to use plastic for something, I figure I, I'm putting it to good use. Uh, I use it multiple times, and and it can be recycled at the end of it. So.
0: That's Excellent. Those are great, great tips. So, so should we move into stand-up paddle? Sure. Um, when you. Can you tell us the story of when you first started hearing about stand-up paddleboards? Way it was probably like mid two thousands or maybe even earlier, and how this led up to you standing on a board for the very first time.
1: Well, it's a funny story. Um, I can remember uh, it was probably around two thousand and six or two thousand and seven, getting a phone call from Jimmy Terrell of Quickblade and Jimmy and I go way back because we we've known each other since nineteen eighty one when we raced each other at the Junior World Championships in canoe, and. Um, so I got this call from Jimmy and he's going oh Larry I'm into this great new thing it's called stand-up paddling it's like you're on a surfboard and you have a paddle and and uh, I kind of shot him down I was like I can't surf Jimmy like you know like there's no surf uh on the Great Lakes I can't surf and i I was uh I was just sort of doing outrigger uh paddling at that time in an OC one and uh so I really didn't give him any you know there no one had a board up here there was no opportunity to even try it so I just I kind of just I sort of blew him off about it. And then I remember being at a outrigger race in Toronto, um, in, in 2010, in August, 2010. And there was a guy there who had just brought some paddle boards in and was starting to sell them. And he's like, Larry, you got to try this, try it. And I'm like, I don't want to try it. I like, he goes, no, no, you got to try it, try it. And he, and he, and he put me out in this little lagoon, you know, beside the Harbor, um, so I he, I said, OK, fine, I'll try it. So I, he put it in the water. I jumped on it. I paddled only on the right. I went out, did a little circle. came back in. And I was like, OK, there, I tried it. And I, it's I'm basically just humoring him. <laughs> and he goes, take the board. And I go, I don't want the board. Like, I honestly, I didn't. I was <laughs> kind of proud of myself that I would stop spending money on like paddling toys, you know, I was like I was growing up. And um, he goes, no, 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 take it, take it. I, I'll put it on your car for you. You don't have to pay me or just just take it. So I was like, okay, put it in my car. So he put it in my car. I took it back, uh, took it home, and I left it at the canoe club, and I didn't touch it for probably three weeks. And then I was coaching at the canoe club at that time, and our national championships were in Regina, which is in the prairies, in the middle of Canada, like 3,000 miles away. And um, so we sent all of our boats, all of our canoes and kayaks, out uh, in a transport trailer early and so the kids I was coaching didn't have their canoes for, you know, the last eight days or so of training. And, um, I was at that time, I was paddling with the kids that I was coaching, uh, rather than, I was trying to do that rather than sitting in the motorboat because I was getting a little exercise. I could demonstrate things and I was coaching, you know, people that were, uh, you know, developing athletes. So they, I, I could keep up with them. And, um, uh, so I gave them my, one of them, my canoe and I had nothing to paddle on. So, I thought I'll paddle on that paddleboard. So I, I grabbed it and I, I put my GPS, I taped it onto the, to the deck of the board so I could see it because that's what I did when I was paddling in my sprint canoe all the time. And you got to know how fast you're going and and how far you paddled. Right. And, um, so I went out and started paddling. And my first impression from looking at the GPS was geez, these things are slow. And the second uh, thing was that I made note of the, the pace that I was going. And, um, it was kind of fun I did, and the cool thing was on the right side anyway, it felt like exactly like C1, but standing up the left side, it felt <clears throat> excuse me, totally foreign to me because <clears throat> um, uh, I, you know I didn't take any strokes on the left, and so I felt very unstable. It's just hard to find you know any connection with the water. Um, but what I did was <clears throat> I, I made note of the pace, and when I got home, I looked on the internet at some race results. And I remember looking at this race in North Carolina called the Cold Stroke Classic, which was in Wrightsville Beach in uh, January of that year. And uh, in flat water, it was all on the intercoastal, (coughs) excuse me. And I looked at the times that the guys were doing and, or the paces that they were doing. And I was like, that's the pace I'm doing. I could do this. So all of a sudden now I was interested in it. And, um, I started to paddle it more and more. And, um, my first board was a 12 foot six bark competitor, which is like a 12 foot six by 29 inch wide board and uh it's amazing no, how it's right now it's amazing how the sports developed and um uh but i raced on that board at this uh race called the cold stroke classic in january 2011 and uh i won the 12.6 class and i almost won the 14 foot class paddling entirely on the right and um <laughs> uh, did they
0: think that that was the oddest thing they've ever seen in their life oh yeah
1: and i had this kind of funky split stance you know like staggered stance like almost surf stance because that was a sort of a natural evolution. If you, if you picture being in a high kneel position and then standing up from it, you're going to be standing in a surf stance. Right. And, um, so I, yeah, a lot of people were laughing at me before the race, not so much after. Um, but that, (laughs) but that basically I was hooked and, um, Jimmy, you know, he uh, got all excited and started fixing, setting me up with paddles and he introduced me to Joe Bark, who was, is the nicest guy. And, um, he got me hooked up with a 14 foot dominator and, um, and I rode barks, uh, for really happily for, um, for five years until 2015. And, um, and then, um, and, and you know, and I was hooked on standup paddling and, uh, it was, I started race doing all kinds of different races and, meeting all the great people in it, and it was a whole new thing. Like Honestly, it was like rediscovering paddling uh, and the enthusiasm I had as a kid for sprint canoe. It was like I, I rediscovered that again in my late 40s for um, for stand-up paddling, and I haven't
0: looked back. And was there a lot of crossover between the people that you knew and canoeing? And stand up paddle or was it a totally new bunch.
1: Uh, w- with few exceptions, it was a totally new bunch, but because cool, I
0: suppose most of the guys had come over from surfing, right?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's a, the cool thing you with stand up paddling is people come from a variety of backgrounds, like you know, especially now back then, it was largely surfing. Um, mm-hmm. because most people who most stand up paddling at that point was all done in the ocean. Um, if you look at it worldwide now, there's more people in flat water environments that are stand up who come from flat water environments that are stand up paddling than, than ocean environments. And um, uh, so now, you know, stand up paddlers come from every imaginable background. Uh, some of them are non-athletes who've discovered that this is a really cool sport. And I think I can be an athlete in it. And some of them are athletes from other sports like swimmers and triathletes and cyclists. And, and some of them are, come from paddle sport backgrounds like sprint canoe or, Uh, outrigger or marathon and some of them come from um from a surf background and uh so there's this uh, but the, the cool thing about all these people is they're great people like again you know the the great thing about sprint canoe was in all the years that I paddled I don't think I can like honestly I can't think of anyone that I didn't that I met that I didn't really like and it's the same thing that's happened with with stand-up paddling. It's just like, it's just a cool group of people. And,
0: um, Uh, I second that as well.
1: Amazing people. Yeah. And it's just, it's Um, a privilege to be part of that community.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, now the relationship that you've had with starboard that started what in 2015, what initiated the transfer over from, from Bach to starboard?
1: Well, uh, I was at the Carolina cup in 2015 and, um, I was struggling to stay in the draft train and uh, where the year before uh, I just roared through the flats and um, might've been, I mean, I can remember, I don't know whether it's 2013 or 2014, but seeing Danny Ching and Chase let's go into the inside from the ocean well ahead of us and actually catching up to them in the flats um, and pulling along, breaking apart one draft train and then you know, pulling along a, a train that was Jimmy, me, and a, uh, one or two other people. Um, so being really good in the flats uh, on a twenty-eight inch wide, fourteen foot board when everyone else is on 28, 28 inch wide board twenty-eight inch wide boards, and then all of a sudden in twenty fifteen, I'm I'm struggling to stay in the draft train, and I'm thinking to myself, what is wrong? Why? Like, have I hit the wall? I'm, uh, you know, I'm thinking, okay, like I'm fifty 52 years old now. So if I like, have I just hit the wall? Is it just you know i mean can i just not do it anymore or what what's the deal here and i remember being really frustrated for a lot of the inside section of that race and then at one point i remember looking down at the back of the board in front of me and it was a guy on a jp australia and those boards had in big bold uh, letters at the back of the of the board on the deck of the board where you could see it it would say you know 24 by 14 and i looked down and i think, this guy's on a 24 inch wide board and i'm on a 28 inch wide board like Aha! You know that's why I'm struggling. I started to look at the other boards in the train, and they're all narrow. And um, and I was on this 28 inch wide board. And so I came in, and I I realized that if I'm going to be competitive, I got to be on a competitive board. And uh, at the time, uh, Bark Surf Tech uh, was just coming out with a 26 inch wide uh, D2 Dominator. Um, but you know, most of the boards in the race were already narrower than that. And I just realized that. I got to go to something that's, that's more competitive. And, um, so what I did was I was coaching the national canoe kayak team at the time. And pretty much as soon as I got home from Carolina, we had to go to Europe, uh, for a month for world cup races. So while I was there, I was frantically emailing people back home, lining up boards that I could test when I got home. And then when I got home, I used, um, this, uh, piece of, uh, this technology that we had on the for the canoe kayak team, that would was like a GPS accelerometer device, really high level that we would put on the boats when they raced uh, and in training when we we're testing them to collect data about their performance. And I remember I put that on my my paddle boards, each one that I tested, and I did this really intense test protocol with multiple runs per board where I tried to test all the different boards that I was riding. And I remember I was riding like I tested out Barks sick Maui's fanatics um boards uh board and uh and starboards and i tested sort of in two classes one the all round board you know 24 to 26 inches wide and the other with like the the flat water boards like 23 uh inch wide boards and the starboards were the fastest the all-star and the sprint 2015 all-star and sprint were the fastest so i bought them and um um i raced on them that summer i won shadowjack on the 2015 all-star that year and um uh starboard or trident sports which is the north american distributor for starboard reached out to me and um they um at the end of the season and they said hey man we noticed you know you're you're riding starboard and uh you know would would you like to have a deal where we could give you boards and and." Um, that was a dream come true to me. So um that established a relationship with Starboard and uh I've used their boards since and um, um and, you know proud to be like a team member. I'm not on the same tier obviously as Boothie and Connor and Fiona and, and Daniel Silio and, and uh Sonny Hunshide, but um I'm I'm more than I'm as excited to be involved with them today as I was when the offer first came and uh, I really believe in their their uh, their boards, uh, what they, the work that they put into uh, sort of R&D to come up with new ideas. I think they're, you know, the leading edge of design. And um, so now I'm riding 2020 boards. I'm waiting for the 2021s to come in uh, because they're still not in the hands of powders in North America yet. And um, well, that
0: was my next question is like, how did the 2020 launch go down with all the coronavirus around? What is, is that? Is that why there's a bit of a, a time lag?
1: I, you know, I don't know. I mean, we're we, we should be on 2021s right now. And um, <clears throat> so I'm riding a 2020 like in years past. You get your you know, you get your 2019 board in fall 2018, you get your 2020 board in fall 2019. And so I've been on my 2020s now for over a year. And the 2021s I know are in a warehouse in Long Beach or someplace in California. And they just haven't been delivered. And quite frankly, I don't know what the holdup is. Um, I'm pretty happy with the 2020s that I'm riding right now. So um, you know, I, I'm and like I said, I'm you know, I I don't pay for my boards. I I, you know, I'm riding their boards and I'm happy to to um you know, with what I've got, but I'm desperately looking forward to getting on a on a new All Star that's a dugout. I think that's going to be just this radically improved design because I've always wondered when I start once I started using dugout sprints, I started wondering, well, why aren't they making the All Stars a dugout? You know, it's gonna it would really improve it. And um, and then I'm also really keen to get on a 19.75 inch wide sprint and see what that can do. You know, like we've taken, uh, you know, I've gone from being the guy who was riding the 28 inch wide board when everyone else is on 24s and 25s or even 23s. And I'm using a 20.75 inch wide sprint now in almost everything that Lake Ontario throws at us. I surf it, I downwind on it. I don't know
0: how you stand up. And,
1: um, um, you know, it's, you know, it's like I told you at the beginning, it's narrower than my C1 was. And, um, but, uh, you know, you can, it's a you, you can use these flat water boards in kind of all conditions if you just are willing to put the time in to it. And, uh, the other board but Larry, that can I we are,
0: put into context, like how, how, how tall are you and how much do you weigh? I'm in context?
1: six feet. I don't, I, I you know, being Canadian, you know, we're metric in a lot of things, mm-hmm. but, uh, <laughs> height and weight, we till, still tend to be feet and pounds. So I'm six feet. So it's and, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's about 182 or, um, mm-hmm centimeters and then uh, i'm 185 on average pounds you know uh, so that's like 80 what like 85 84 kilograms and um so i'm at the i'm at the outside limit for uh, you know rider weight for these boards but what i've discovered is if you if you paddle well and you get your weight off the board and onto your paddle you can use you can be a heavier guy And use a board that's made for a lighter paddler because it matters not uh, like when you're paddling it doesn't matter how much uh how much your body weight is displaced creating displacement when you're standing still because you're not standing still when you're paddling it right it matters what it what you're displacing when you're moving and if you're if you paddle well and you get your weight off the board and onto the paddle and you get the board up out of the water and skipping across the surface of the water then all of a sudden you know you're not displacing there's there's hardly any displacement right so so you can be heavier than they recommend and still paddling really well uh, on a on a skinny board um, you know so that's why that, that's what I've learned
0: but this is all incredible advice and and um, were you searching? for a way to get that advice out to more people and is that how paddle monster started or, or was it a completely different
1: idea? well you know what uh i was a school teacher uh at a private school um here in oakville um just around the corner from the house i grew up in and uh from 1996 until 2014 and um during that time i taken up stand-up paddling and um I uh one of the things when I started stand up paddling I remember looking on the internet for information about it and uh being really disappointed with the quality of the information that I found there wasn't a lot of good quality you know like here's what to do and why information and so I figured out a lot of stuff by myself or by actually talking to people like Jimmy and then Jimmy you know introduced me to people like Dave Kalama and so whenever I met Dave I'd pick his brain and or read whatever he wrote um but um, by and large, uh, you know, a lot of it was trial and error and figuring stuff out myself and trying to apply what I did in sprint canoe to this different paddle discipline. And um, uh, because I, there was not a lot of information available at the start, I decided that I would share what I was learning with other people so that if they were new and starting out, they would at least have some information to go from. At the same time, too, I, I'd been teaching for, you know, uh, 15 years. And I would realize that, wow, it would be really cool if I could you know quit teaching and just you know make a living paddling. Like I love this stand-up paddling, and it's there's other people out there that i I've met that are making a living, you know, being doing something in the industry. And I thought, well, it would be really cool if I could do that. So I started uh, I, I created my own website, and I started to put all these uh, posts that I was writing in a blog on that website and uh, trying to provide real good quality information. And I remember people telling me, you know, you're crazy giving this stuff away. Why do we, you should be charging for that. And my answer to them was that, you know, perhaps I should be, but nobody's going to pay for something that they don't know the quality of. And, um, you know, I didn't at that time have any, uh, you know, marketable background in standup paddling. Um, and so if I was asking people to pay for stuff, who was going to pay for stuff that you know of which the quality was dubious right so i figured if i gave stuff away people could see it at face value recognize that it's actually good quality stuff and that that what i you know what i gave away was actually an investment and that at some point um i maybe would be able to monetize um uh you know my knowledge and so i did that right up until uh in 24 I was approached by some of the national team athletes in canoe kayak um, here in Canada uh, about coaching with the national team, and um, so um, it ended up that I got a job coaching with the national canoe kayak team Uh, from 2014. It was supposed to run through until the Olympics in Rio in 2016, and um, so I quit my teaching job. I asked, I actually asked for leave of absence, but they didn't want to grant a two-year leave so i i resigned and i took this coaching job and um which was in many ways like a dream because now i was you know full-time uh making a living off of paddling and um uh the unfortunate thing was with that job is that the funding ran out in april 2016 and um so Gosh. it didn't even didn't even get me to rio but i uh the good thing was that they knew that that was going to happen at the end of the 2015 season so in in September 2015, they came to me and they said, you know what? We have a problem. The funding's going to run out before Rio. So you, you're employed until April, but after that, we can't, you know, we're not going to be able to employ it. So I was like, okay, that's cool. And so um, I was then back to exploring other options. I didn't really want to go back to teaching. And I was at this uh, cool race that they have in Wilmington, Wrightsville uh, Beach, um, North Carolina called the Surf to Sound. And it's like a half a Carolina Cup, basically. Um, half in the ocean, half in the inside, and uh, it's held in November every year. So I was down in North Carolina, sitting in the restaurant at the Blockade Runner, the hotel where everything's based at, um, having breakfast, and John Bosang of Distress mullet Fame uh, comes up to me and hey, he says, "Hey man, how's it going?" And he uh, he goes, "I got this great idea uh, about coaching," and we talked about online coaching in the past, but with me teaching and then with me coaching the national canoe team, there was really no way for me to even entertain that just because there was no time. And he hadn't really put the, the, you know, any meat on the bones of the idea. Um, But by 2015, November he had, and we sat down and he showed me some stuff on his laptop. And he had this cool idea called that we're going to call it paddle monster. And he had like a logo for it. That was really cool. Uh, I was like, this is perfect. This is, I I'm at a point where I need to find something I'm in. And so we got together. Um, he came up to Toronto and we, we hammered it all out, what it would look like, what the objectives would be, how it would work. And we launched in, um, May, 2016. And in the first two hours we had 80 subscribers. And uh, so we were basically making money right out of the shoot. And, um, You know, the whole model is that I knew a lot of people that were even locally here that were that had jobs, had created jobs for themselves in stand up paddling. But the model was sort of buy a bunch of boards, maybe a trailer to pull them around on and, you know, rent them, uh, give lessons to people on them, that type of thing. Um, But the problem was, A, there was a lot of um, overhead. You had to invest in all the equipment. The second problem was. Where I live, anyway, it was seasonal because it would really only was really only really viable from say May till the end of September, and then it gets a little bit cold for everyone except the real hardcores. Um, and it just didn't seem like a um, you know a viable way to run a business. And I wanted to flip that model on upside down, and I wanted to to use the power of the internet to uh, have like basically instead of local reach to have unlimited reach. Um, to be able to reach people who could paddle year round so that it was no longer seasonal. Um, and to have little overhead beyond, um, you know, your, your internet provider, your, your website fees, your, your server charges, all that kind of stuff. And, um, and make knowledge my currency. Um, and so, uh, paddle monster fit that bill perfectly. So we launched right away. We, we had, you know, about 80 subscribers, and a lot of them are still with us to this day. Um, and, um, you know, we've hired other coaches. Travis Grant works with us with a small group. Seychelle has worked with us. She um, is just uh, going to branch out into life coaching, um, so she wants to move in a bit of a new direction, which, and we're supporting her in that. She's still going to work with us doing clinics and training camps, but um, she's going to get a little bit out of the writing programs for people side of things. Uh, We've got uh, Victoria Burgess, who's a PhD in exercise science, uh, a really accomplished stand-up paddler and a a certified sport nutritionist, so she works with us. We've got a a strength coach, a Canadian strength coach, a strength and conditioning coach who's worked um, with uh, our sprint canoe kayak team for 12 years with a bunch of Olympic medalists. He also works with other sports, like he's currently working with uh, freestyle uh, skiing Uh, canada and they're the number one team in the world so he's uh right now he's up in the yukon working with them but i mean we've got some of the best coaches in the world with the best knowledge you're ever going to find uh working with us and uh um you know we're we're viable so uh um it's um we're able to make a living doing this and doing what we love to do
0: um Sounds, so, sounds like the perfect idea. But I mean, starting what is essentially a tech company when you're, I don't know, over 50 and coming from a sports background seems quite challenging. Was it challenging for you?
1: Well, well I'm not the tech guy. So for starters, okay, cool. you know, like, <laughs> it's like uh, I'd be lost without uh, without John and, and uh, Tim Myers, who's uh, who's our, uh, our real tech guy. Um, you know, so basically we're, uh, you know, the three of us uh, are three guys whose strengths complement each other really well and make up for each other's weaknesses. So, um, I'm the, the, the paddling and, and sport and coaching knowledge. And these guys are the marketing knowledge or the, the, uh, the tech knowledge. And so together we make a, a formidable team and, um, um, you know, and it's, um, uh, it, 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 it's, it's worked. I mean, we, we have aspirations to be, uh, to penetrate more into Europe and to to Asia. And, and, uh, and the other thing I think, too, that we want to do is, I don't know about in your part of the world, but over here this past summer, we saw more people paddling um, than Absolutely. we've ever seen before. And I remember when I started paddling, I was right kind of coming into it at the tail end of the initial sup explosion, you know, where mm-hmm. people were, you know, everyone was discovering it and was really excited about it. And then like around 2013, when I was really getting into it, and thinking it was the greatest thing going, I remember encountering people who had been around from the very beginning, and they were lamenting the fact that growth was slowing down. And, you know, all the industry, they were you know, uh, um, sort of forecasting doom and gloom for the industry, because it was it was slowing down. And, um, uh, but this, past summer was like an explosion in my part of the world we would see i paddle with a group of anywhere from on a good day you know 10 people on a slow day three other people but we would be out there if there was 10 of us we might see in the 80 minutes we're in the water we might see 50 other people paddling either stand up uh kayak or surf or surf ski or um outrigger on lake ontario far more people paddling than out in motorcraft motorized craft or sailboats
0: and- exactly the same here in Portugal. I mean, this summer, we just paddled across the Algarve, the southern section mm-hmm. of Portugal. For It's about a 160-kilometer trip. And it took us about four and a half days to do that. But on that trip, we just saw so many paddlers and everyone's out and about enjoying it. And you're right. It's a phenomenal rise. I mean, so much so that uh, Sven Rasmussen from um, from Cyborg, from right. he just posted that SUP is now the world's largest water sport. I, I believe I don't it. Know, yeah, because yeah. I've, been, I've been fascinated with the, with the stats. You know? I mean, yeah. how can it be bigger than surfing? We've apparently got anywhere between 17 and 35 million surfers. And I would imagine that paddleboarding is bigger than surfing. Well, if you think just about it logical, too, right? right?
1: Like I said it at the beginning, initially when I first started paddling, SUP was, a, was an ocean thing. You know, like you did it in California and Hawaii and, you know, Florida or whatever. But, but now, like in North America, there are far more people who do it inland you know, on lakes and rivers, tiny lakes and rivers, than, then do it in the ocean. And so there's just been this explosion of growth. And, and I see it in, in the community I'm at, where there were, you know, just like, literally, like, uh, hundreds of people that, I, I, that I'd never seen before, and who were clearly novices, you know, that with new equipment, and um, uh, new to the sport, that were out there learning and enjoying the sport. And, You know, it it was an interesting year because of COVID and, you know, being on the water, uh, doing any paddle sport is like the ultimate, uh, you know, healthy activity in a a pandemic because you're so nicely socially distant while you're out there. But, you know, I'm optimistic that this trend will continue, that that there's this whole new surge. There's this whole new surge of growth in the sport. And so I think we want to try to capitalize on that, too, and try to make Paddle Monster like a... um, like a virtual magazine of uh, um, with a lot of information that appeals to the the novice and to the beginner as well as the you know currently to this point we've been focused on the person who's like a sort of a committed trainer and racer but there's far more people that are just out there wanting to get some exercise and so to provide them with knowledge that's going to help them make that experience more enjoying more enjoyable and more meaningful so you know that's a real thrust for us as well and it means we're going to have to create more content and and have you know new content up all the time but i think that's a that's a real area of growth for us and for everyone else in the industry because there are tons of people that are getting involved um but you know we still see people making common mistakes like paddling with their paddle backwards or putting their fin in backwards or you know um you know not knowing not even knowing how to put their their board on their car and you know there's just so much information that we can provide people to make their experience more meaningful and enjoyable and um and i think that would be a lot of fun and i also think it would be you know it's just a good business proposition
0: sure Yeah, because i mean 70% of the of the stand up paddleboard population are just leisure paddlers and, exactly. and that always that always is a good question in my mind. Is that how do we inspire and promote the sport to those people who are just going out for like maybe once a month and they're going to the beach and they're paddling around and taking that to to, to the next level where they just start doing, you know, longer trips, longer expeditions, even racing maybe mm-hmm. and doing it more regularly. So so that's something that's on my mind all the time. And, and and it's how we can promote the sport, but not just from, you know, from, from a total novice point of view and getting people into the sport, but also getting those people who are into the sport to do it more and more. Yeah.
1: And, and I've thought that too. And, you know, I think that the, the, the easiest way to sort of get people who have already taken a step to get out on the water, to get them to uh, get more involved in it, to be more committed to it, to, you know, enjoy it more and to become, you know, Sort of deeper into it. I think the the, the, the easiest way to do that, and certainly easy from, uh, it doesn't take anything to do it. Is to talk to these people. Is to when you see them, paddle over, and and say hi. Share your enthusiasm and your love for what you do and um, uh, for the sport with them. And uh, you know there was this group of um, Asian women that we saw um, this summer, they usually launched before us. We'd launch at eight 30 and they must've got out at seven 30 or seven o'clock and they're on inflatables and they're on some pretty low budget inflatables. You know, some of the ones were the ones where they had that little window in the middle of the board, you know, in front of where you paddle the plastic. So that you you could see the bottom. And, um, um, and they, these were, um, the community I live in uh, just west of Toronto, it's a fairly affluent community. And there's been a real explosion of uh, people from China or Hong Kong moving into the area. And, um, and they seem to be really interested in getting out on the water and, uh, and, you know, enjoying uh, being on the water, which, you know, traditionally in canoes and kayaks has been a very Canadian activity. And, um so we would see them and, and we, we'd talk to them every morning. Hey girls, how are you doing? Oh, we're doing great. How are you? And how was it out there? Oh, it was so much fun. It was, yo, oh, you will enjoy it so much. And, and, um, we'd help them, you know, like we'd see them putting their fin in backwards. You'd help them or give them a little bits of you know, tips here or there, but basically it was just about here are people from different walks of life from, uh, you know, in this case, different parts of the world. Um, but sharing a common experience. And even though, you know, what I do is, you know, I'm way more serious about it and, and spend a lot more time doing it and, and probably, you know, work up a much bigger sweat when I do it. These girls are out there doing the exact same thing. And, um, you know, uh, and, and trying to expand their horizons. Like they went from, you know, staying on the river where the water is super flat to going out in the lake where it gets a little bit choppier, you know, and, um, um, you know, like good for them because they were, uh, you know, uh, embracing an activity that was new to them and trying to get better at it. And, um, by I think by sharing our stoke, you know, sharing our enthusiasm with them, it makes it that much more fun and enjoyable for them. And I think it, it, it makes it that much more likely that they're going to try to broaden their horizons and expand their participation. So, if everybody could just do that and not be kind of elitist and just uh look at people, look down on people who are paddling on, you know, low budget uh you know, like the Costco or whatever they have in the the big box stores in Europe, the you know, the cheap, you know, low budget inflatables, um don't look down on them, like actually paddle over to them, say hi, ask them how they're enjoying their paddle. Um, you know, share, you know, your experience with them and, and if there's a way to, you know, politely without kind of coming down heavy on them, you know, give them a tip or a pointer that's going to make their, their, their paddle better, you know, offer that. Um, it makes everyone's, it makes, certainly makes my day better when I do that. And I'm sure it makes their day better as well. And it, it just increases the chance that, you know, they're going to, they're going to get into it more. And then that they're going to share it with their friends who who maybe don't paddle yet. You know, that's how we grow the sport.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've started a volunteer-driven club down here in the Algarve just to try and, and bring all the paddlers together because a lot of people go out on their own and some people are a little bit scared about going on their own as well. So mm-hmm. we bring everyone together. It's been a great success. And and that goes back to when I interviewed Chase Kostlitz a while back, and, mm-hmm. and he said, just just go out there and bring people together, go out with a couple yeah. of you and then more will join and more will join. And that's how you do it on a grass streets level. A hundred
1: percent. I mean, if I look at our group, you know, the paddle morons, like we come from a, uh, a varied background. There's a couple of us from come, who have known each other for decades from canoe kayak, but you know, we've got people from, from all over that, um, you know, they've become part of the group and, and, you know, like to the point where, like we don't just see each other when we paddle now, you know, like there's a, we're friends where we do things together socially in well in a COVID free world off the water as well. And, um, mm. uh, it goes back to what I said earlier. Like I can't ever think of people in, in any type of paddling that I've met that I didn't really enjoy hanging with. And, um, uh, there's something about the type of person who's drawn to the water that seems to be, you know, they're cool people. And, um, so when you do, reach out to people and try to bring people together or are welcoming and bring people into your group. You know, you help grow the sport, but you also, you make new friends and uh, you know, like that's what life's about. You can always use more
0: friends. Absolutely, oh, man. Well, Larry, thanks. It's been wonderful chatting to you. Thank you so much for for spending the time with us here on SUP FM. I really, really do appreciate it. Yeah,
1: it's been my pleasure. It's been uh, it's been a great conversation, and um, I'd uh, enjoy doing it again sometime. That'd be great. I'd love that too.
0: Thank you for listening to SUP FM, the number one podcast for stand-up paddlers wherever you are. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. Until then. We'll see you on the water.